We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made the chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of May 3rd, 2021. The Chicago White Sox just finished their nine-game homestand, and it was successful. They did finish 6-3, and three, currently are 15-12 in 2021, and now enter... An odd week with a two-game series in Cincinnati bookended by off days before arriving in Kansas City for the weekend, which is now a much bigger series than we thought before the season started as the Royals are still in first place even after losing two out of three in Minneapolis to the Twins. Then the White Sox come home and the gauntlet begins, 16 games against the Minnesota Twins in a 60-day span. We are quickly approaching a very difficult stretch for the Chicago White Sox. If they are going to win the American League Central, now is the time for them to start playing good baseball because they can add some distance for themselves 
on the Twins and they can overcome the Kansas City Royals and be in first place in the American League Central, or they can continue to struggle and let teams like the Royals buy in that, hey, maybe we can win the American League Central in 2021. But just like many teams around the league, the injury bug has bit the White Sox again. Luis Robert was pulled early in Sunday's game after it appeared he suffered a hip injury while running out an infield single. Robert is heading to the injured list. And while the White Sox don't officially know how serious the injury is until an MRI is had on Monday, May 3rd, after we record this podcast, it puts the White Sox in not a comfortable situation with their outfield. Joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. There's nothing like trying to enjoy a beautiful Sunday day watching the White Sox than seeing Luis Robert in tremendous pain and knowing he's out at least the next 10 days. Yeah, that was... uh unfortunate you know it, it reminded me a lot of of the feeling and and kind of circumstances of jake Berger's injury different body part apparently but just the the helplessness of everybody involved seeing somebody like crumple like that and and not being to put any weight on one leg it's uh just not what you want to see and and the you know the the only thing the white Sox can report on you know initially is that x-rays are negative but x-rays don't tell the story probably with an injury like this so you're just left for basically like uncertainty for about 24 hours and <laughs> fearing anything from like a minimal all right relatively minimal il stint to months if not the rest of the season it's really hard to tell i mean tony la Russa made it sound like it's not going to be uh season ending but you know, you see somebody just, you know, lose the ability to use a leg like that. And uh, yeah, I, I, it, the, the, you certainly reach for the worst. The White Sox announced that it is a strain of the right hip flexor for Luis Robert. But for anyone that does any running on a treadmill or hiking or biking, you know that if you pull that flex, that, that hip flexor, Jim, it, as it appeared to Luis Robert, it's hard to walk let alone run or swing a bat. Uh, so I, my f- fingers crossed. That's all White Sox fans can do right now is that the MRI reports that it's not as serious as it looks. Luis Robert just needs to be on the mend for a couple weeks and he'll be back in action. Uh, we, if it's a tear or if it requires surgery, then, oh man, that then... Then it gets tricky and then we're not talking about weeks. We could be talking months that Luis Robert is out and. You know, this is already a season, Jim, that, you know, we're not watching Aloy Jimenez play for at least the first half of this season. And now it's Luis Robert. Like, this is almost approaching worst case scenario for the Chicago White Sox injury wise. And we did receive this uh, question from one of our Patreon supporters who's been supporting us for a very long time. And it's very timely to address this question. It comes from Andrew Siegel and Andrew wrote to us, Jim, give us your prediction of what the White Sox do. If Luis Robert is out 10 days, 30 days or 60 days. And I think that's a good place to start as far as the conversation, because we know Robert is hurt. We know he's going on at least a 10 day injured list. So let's talk about the next 10 days. What can the White Sox do uh, in to try to fill in the void of Luis Robert? 
Well, basically, it seems like if it we're looking at 10 days that Tony La Russa basically gets to play Larry Garcia and Billy Hamilton as much as he seems to want to, based on how he's playing Garcia over, you know, Andrew Vaughn and Nick Madrigal and Adam Eaton. Like now he has a... Uh, now he has one spot that he can devote playing time to those two guys. So that would be the first place I would see. Okay. So lots of Larry Garcia, lots of Billy Hamilton. Naturally, we would also get a question of where in the world is Adam Engel? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I think it was Mazda of Orland Park tweeted out a photo that Adam Engel just recently bought a car from their dealership. So we have proof of life, Jim. Adam Engel is alive. That mm-hmm. much we know. But the White Sox said when he had a strained hamstring in the final week of spring training, he should be back for the first homestand. And then it became the second homestand. And now that homestand is over. And we still don't have any clarity on when Adam Engel is going to return. And this would be a nice time for Adam Engel to return for the White Sox to at least help out in center field. But I agree with you over the next 10 days until we get more clarity on Adam Engel's injury. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of Lurie Garcia and Billy Hamilton in center field. All right, let's say the news gets worse and it's 30 days and Robert is out for the entire month of May and won't come back in, until June. What do the White Sox do then? Well, that's that's where I'm waiting for Engel to see if, you know, maybe the minor league, uh, the resumption of minor leagues and rehab stints um, allows Engel to actually have a sighting or a plan that isn't just like show up to Schaumburg or Chicago and and cross fingers to see what he looks like when he finally gets major league playing time. So that would be my guess for that kind of interim period. Um, I, I think it depends on just whether... You know, like we know Larry Garcia at this point, um, for better or for worse. We know what he looks like when he's functioning and being a valuable utility player. And we know what he looks like when he's just looks helpless, like he has been for chunks of uh, the first month of the season. So I guess over the next probably two weeks, you know, seeing a lot of Garcia probably have a better idea, like just, um, you know, what he has left. Um, you know, because we've seen him before, like last year, filling in for Tim Anderson for 10 days before he got hurt and missed, uh, you know, basically the rest of the season until October. Um, th- this should be just like a, a pretty good chance to form a verdict on just how much he can help. Um, because I, I know LaRusso wants to get him going, and I know the White Sox probably their you know, best laid plans when it comes to just the uh, depth of the roster counts a lot on Garcia being able to fill various positions. So it would seem like he would need to play there. Um, you know, after that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, if Angle is not ready and we're just kind of just waiting on Godot for him, uh, then maybe Danny Mendick comes up and becomes part of the outfield, not center field, but maybe uh, is able to get into the mix in left field or something like that just to provide more of a bat option there, even if, you know, it does come up the, the cost of Andrew Vaughn playing time or just just a way to have some depth for the outfield that isn't just reliant on Garcia who might be just off or done or Billy Hamilton who might be, you know, kind of off or done. All right, then let's look at 60 days. What do the White Sox do if Luis Robert is out until the All-Star break? Well, I think that's when you can start thinking about trades uh, and there might be some teams like we saw Mike Talkman go from the Yankees to the Giants and the Giants kind of are using him as a stopgap. So, you know, perhaps if there's another roster squeeze on San Francisco side and he becomes available, maybe he makes even more sense than he did before. 
Um, the other one I was thinking of was like Colorado has a couple outfielders. Like there's uh, Rymel Tapia, who I always thought would be a good fit for the White Sox roster, given that he can cover center in a pinch and he's left-handed and can get on base. Um, that would be a, a guy who would fit, and he's got a couple years of team control after this one. Um, the other one I thought of was like Charlie Blackman. If, you know, the new Rockies front office just wanted to get out from under the contract and would pay any price to do so. Um, you know, that's a case where, you know, if the White Sox are paying him basically like, uh, you know, a few million a year, kind of like I'm thinking of like the Russell Martin trade when the Blue Jays got rid of him, I think it was to the Dodgers and, you know, basically had to pay all of the freight aside from just, you know, 3 million. If it's something like that, you know, maybe that's a case where the White Sox, would uh, take a chance on somebody like him if it's like a long-term prognosis and both Jimenez and Robert are out for months and you don't know exactly what they're going to look like when they can play again. That would seem to be the most, you know, at this point, uh, when you're looking at trade candidates who might be available before like the the, the market really materializes in July, that's, that's the first place I can think of. So this White Sox outfield, before Aloy Jimenez, Vince Carter, the left field wall... <laughs> We were looking at Aloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, and Adam Eaton, thinking that, wow, Adam Eaton is going to be the weak link in for this outfield. But overall, when you got Luis Robert, who has a chance to be another gold glover, win another gold glove in center field, and mature more as a hitter, and we were excited about the offensive possibilities of Aloy Jimenez hitting 40-plus home runs and driving in 100-plus RBIs, for the White Sox in 2021. We could possibly see against Cincinnati a Billy Hamilton, Lurie Garcia, and Adam Eaton outfield. And man, Jim, that screams 2018. <laughs> that screams 2007 with the uh, Scott Pizednik, Jerry Owens, Darren Erstad outfield. Oh, yeah, it does. Great call. Great call. 2007 outfield. Yeah. It's not good. And, um, you know, Adam Eaton, I think when it, when it comes to like the outfield, I think he's kind of holding the line, <laughs> kind of like the, uh, last line between like, uh, uh, order and chaos is Eaton just because he's in the middle. Like this catches Eaton when he's at his worst stretch too. Oh, for 13 with eight strikeouts over his last four games. Uh, he does have a walk, but I mean, like he's looked out of sorts and, you know, when you look at his production, you know, there's a chance that it's just a slump, slow starter. The knee thing was weird, so maybe that plays into it too, but it's something like ultimately he can come back from. But when you look at like the shape of his numbers and his OBP has dropped to around 300 and his OPS has dropped below 700, I think now, that like I, that could very well be his season numbers. Like, you know, for good chunks of the season based on what he showed in Washington, his age, and, you know, if he's not playing at 100%. So, you know, I think over the next couple of weeks in this, you know, the 10 to 30 to 60 day window that Andrew outlined, um, he seems like somebody who's going to play a big part in just how big of an absence uh, Robert's, you know, just injury and, 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 and that vacancy is. Because if, if Eaton can resume what he was doing and be just like a mid, you know, like a 750 to 800 OPS guy like he was, uh, and you have Andrew Vaughn in left, who's looking okay, occasionally overmatched by good right-handed pitching, but otherwise better than I thought he would be. Then center, you can maybe get away with like just a, a decent glove or um, somebody who's just uh, kind of uh, subject to hot and cold streaks and 
you hope that uh, a couple other spots in the roster improve too, and you can ultimately hide it, like bury it in the eighth spot in the order. Uh, but if Eaton starts sliding uh, and he he doesn't surface for a while, then I think it becomes a lot harder to mask anything because you can't. it's not like you can really slide Andrew Vaughn to right. Uh, I, I think he's doing a decent job in left. His arm could play in right field, but when you look at his routes and you look at just you know how he's made some of these catches, uh, you know, inelegantly and with wrong footing and, uh, you know, the ball kind of rattling around his mitt. I don't know if you want to move him from left to right. Like just, you know, when, if Vaughn, you know, happens to drop one of these flies, these kind of flirted with doing, you know, that's maybe one base error. You know, I mean, that maybe turns a single into a double, but you know, with, uh, with, with Vaughn and right, you know, if he takes a wrong angle or if he, you know, drops the ball or if he, you know, if it clanks off and kicks it or something like that, that turns a single into a triple. And that's, I think, you know, maybe more than you want to put on a guy who's never played outfield before this year. So I think a, a lot of it rests on Eaton and, and too much <laughs> I think uh, rests on Eaton in terms of just being comfortable at all. Yeah, Adam Eaton right now, his season numbers have dropped after a very good start to the 2021 season. Adam Eaton is now hitting 217 with a 301 on base percentage and slugging 380. That's a 681 OPS, And you compare it to the other outfielders we just spoke about. Lurie Garcia is batting 200 with a 224 on base percentage, slugging 246. That OPS is not even close to 500. It's currently at 470. Billy Hamilton is batting 176 with a 263 on base percentage. And of course, his slugging is 176 as there's just no power in his bat. Speaking of no power, Jake Lamb is hitting 143 with a 357 on base percentage because he walks. He's got seven walks to his eight strikeouts, um, but his slugging is 143 because he has no power in his bat. And eight strikeouts. And, and, and eight strikeouts, yeah. So he walks or strikes out. That's that's pretty much all Jake Lamb does. And Andrew Vaughn, who is hitting 275 with a 373 on base percentage. He's slugging 373, um, but... You know, as far as his slugging percentage, it's just one point off of Jose Abreu. And that's where I want to get to because outfield-wise for the White Sox, whether it's 10, 30, or 60 days, it's going to get ugly, Jim. I mm-hmm. think we have we have set the table. And if you're listening to this right now, it's going to be ugly. Fingers crossed Tony La Russa plays Andrew Vaughn more. I doubt it. There's still a part of me that's prepared to be somewhat surprised if the White Sox send him down to Charlotte uh, and they keep Jake Lamb on the roster if they decide to bring back or activate Adam Engel because they just don't want to let go Jake of Jake Lamb yet. I, I can't tell you why or what the logic is behind that, but I could see that happening. Uh, but I don't think the White Sox at this moment starting there can afford to send Andrew Vaughn to AAA gym because I, as I just read, as far as the numbers, we're talking about guys who are not doing a good job of making contact, but when they do make contact, it's not for power. So what you're really hoping for is that if you do throw out a outfield configuration of Billy Hamilton, Lurie Garcia, and Adam Eaton, that if the ball's not hit too hard, where it's going to sail into the bleachers, that defensively, they're not going to embarrass you and they're going to make some difficult defensive plays and rob base hits in the outfield. So they're helping you on the run prevention side. But there is not a high ceiling when it comes to the offensive side. Thus, mm-hmm. 
the White Sox, I think, have to now keep Andrew Vaughn because of Robert's injury because at least he can provide offensive upside from someone in the outfield. Yeah, I mean, I think once Adam Engel's uh, timeline got pushed back, I backed off of the Vaughn to Charlotte thing just because, you know, my thinking was that with Engel coming back and hitting lefties, and Vaughn having much better at bats against lefties and righties and, and Larusa seeming to think the same thing with how he was deployed, that you may as well have Engel out there and then just more or less have Vaughn go down, just get his timing, you know, more up to speed against good or better right-handed pitching than he's seen in the minors and then bring him back. Like I didn't see any harm in doing so, but with as long as angle is a mystery uh, and his, you know, he's having setbacks and who knows what he's going to look like and how long it's going to take for him to tune up because now he's missed like a month of action. Um, to me, it just seems like Vaughn's a no brainer. And, and really it's, it's like Vaughn playing more and playing near every day should be a no brainer. I mean, we saw Shane Bieber carve him up. And that's a case where, um, yeah, I mean, Shane Bieber look, makes a lot of hitters look bad, but, you know, he made Vaughn look worse than the rest. He was throwing, like, fastballs just off the plate, and Vaughn, I think, was... I think he sensed that Vaughn was just trying to poke something into right field, and he's just like, okay, try poking something, like, five inches off the plate, and he couldn't do it. Um, you know, kind of fed into, like, Vaughn's conservative approach and just exploited that. When I when I saw that happen, I just thought, okay, that's that explains some of it. But not enough of it, I don't think. When you, when you see the at-bats that Garcia has, when you see the at-bats that Jake Lamb has, uh, nobody's better right now. And I think Vaughn stands to gain from facing, like, maybe non-elite righties, just, you know, decent ones. Yeah, I, I think even if he has an 0 for 4, that 0 for 4 is more useful than an 0 for 4 for Lamb or an 0 for 3 with a walk for Lamb or an 0 for 3 with, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe 0 for 3 with Garcia. He doesn't get up to bat for a fourth time. Uh so that, that's kind of where I'm at right now. The Jake Lamb thing, I think, is just, um, it's confusing. Um, you know, it, it seems like a loyalty thing, like a holdover from his Arizona days, like the time they overlapped in Arizona, just Larusa taking a, a, a real uh, shining to Lamb and, and thinking he's still got life left in him. And right now, um, you know, it just runs into that thing we've talked about before with, um, just uh, in various years, like I'm thinking like late Robin Venturi years where you just give so much playing time to guys who weren't part of the plan and, you know, weren't part of any team's plan. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Vaughn is part of the plan. Lamb is not part of the plan. Lamb was not good enough to be part of other teams' plans. Like he might've gotten down to the minors that the White Sox didn't claim him. So yeah, just that's, that's why I don't know. And, and, and that's what's hard to get right now. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that, Vaughn has shown enough to to get like you know I would say start four out of five days. I think that's kind of what I'm looking at, uh, mm -hmm. roughly. You know, while Angle's out, while uh, while uh, Roberts out, and uh, just see how he looks. And if he goes into a tailspin, then then adjust, then pull back, limit his playing time. Some in the Charlotte, you have options if it doesn't work out, but you may as well see it. So that's the outfield. Somebody else also needs to start stepping up to help on the offensive side because Luis Robert was hitting the ball well for the White Sox. Uh, mm -hmm. His season slash line is 316 batting average with a 359 on base percentage and slugging 463. I tell you what, he finishes with that season line. We White Sox fans are ecstatic. That is a huge step up for Luis Robert in his second season. He was really flashing 
uh, as far as a lot more maturity at the plate, recognizing sliders. And again, with his unique blend of speed and power can make things happen offensively. And now the White Sox don't have that type of impact bat in the lineup. And now I'm going to go to the veterans. It is time, Jim, for Jose Abreu and Yasmani Grandal to wake up. Because Mm -hmm. it is warm now. It's in the 80s. It's not April anymore. And oh my gosh, Nick Madrigal is still out slugging Jose Abreu and Yoan Makata. I'm going to add Makata to this mix as well. Makata has a good batting average, 264. He's got a better on base percentage at 370. There's no pop. There's no power in Yoan Makata's bat right now. He's got three doubles and three home runs. That's six extra base hits out of 24 hits. Where is the power? Where is the muscle from Yoan Makata? But back to the veterans. Jose Abreu is hitting 202 with a 302 on base percentage, slugging 374. And oh my gosh, Jim, the fastball numbers are not improving. After I called it out weeks ago and everybody shoved it in my face saying, hey, look at Abreu hit two home runs off fastballs. Guess what? It's not getting better after that game. He's still hitting 170 against fastballs. He's still got a 40% whiff rate against fastballs. And we're three weeks away. If this doesn't improve, that I'm going to be hitting the panic button because now you're about one-third of the season done. And all of a sudden, this slugging first baseman has completely forgot how to crush fastballs. He's three strikeouts away in 2021, striking out more on fastballs than he did in 2020. I don't know how much more I can keep screaming this into the void. Someone within the Chicago White Sox clubhouse Wake Jose Abreu up and tell him to start attacking fastballs. Stop sitting on the slider. Stop sitting on the changeup. It's not helping you at this moment. They're getting you out with the fastball. For the love of God, start hitting the fastball like you've always done in your career. That's all I'm asking for with Jose Abreu, Jim. That's all I'm asking for. And if he can wake up, That helps the White Sox offense in a big time. I know I'm ranting here, but for the love of God, I do not want to see Jose Abreu go down this path because it screams the path that Edwin Carnacion went down and, quite frankly, Encarnacion is now out of the league. Yeah, there's not much more to say. Uh, When you look at just the ground ball rates, I mean, that's, that's just what jumps out to me for both players. You know, just... Abreu's at 58%, Grandal's at 56%, and, and, you know, both are just sudden. I mean, Abreu's had the ground ball issues here and there for chunks of time, which is why he often looks done, um, you know, or often looks like his decline setting in, and he, he's able to, like, get on a, a tear and write his numbers, and he's more or less fine. Um, yeah, Abreu's just, he's in a weird spot where he's just... Uh, I think he's just maybe being outguessed a little bit, or like you said, sitting on sliders, just not getting in the right counts, being in between, uh, and and just you know, then he ends up chasing stuff below the zone, pounding on the ground. Grandal, it seems like you know, when you, when you watch him hit, it's uh, more of a just almost you know, to me, it's it's like he's not fouling pitches off. I have to look into that, see like what his foul ball rate is, but it seems like you know his his eye is what it normally is. And, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's, you know, swinging at good pitches and, 
you know, they're not really attacking him like in a different way. It just seems like, you know, pitches he might have wasted before, like fouled off. He's just putting into play like grounders right in the shift. And, you know, the, the pull rate is up and, um, you know, he doesn't really have a, you know, the, the kind of just, you know, I'm trying to think of the, the right way to say it. You know, I think it's kind of, uh, you know, in modern hitting parlance, you know, they say like, you don't want the ball to go deep. You don't want the ball to travel deep. Um, but I think in the case of like Jose Abreu and sometimes Yasmani Grandal that just like they get out a bit too far ahead of it and are just like they're, they're mm-hmm. uh, just they're by their time their bats going up it's meeting the top of the ball and just topping it over and over again so it's just like well I don't want to say like like let the ball travel and hit like you know poke balls to right field like, I think there is a little bit of value in just like trying to meet the ball deeper in the zone like while the while while the barrel is traveling upwards um, that that's where that's just how it looks at me in terms of the batted ball, it's just like he's topping everything and just things are going right in the ground. He's not swinging bad pitches. Like I don't come away from his bat saying like, what are you doing in the way like with Jose Abreu when he's like swinging pitches below his knees and hitting grounders left side. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's the case where you go like, what are you, you know, how have you not <laughs> seen that coming yet? Uh, but you know, in both cases, like grounders, I think are just probably one of the more maddening forms of struggling because when you just see so many of them, especially like a guy like Rondal who just, you know, they know how to shift them to trap those grounders. Right. It just looks so, you know, powerless. Yeah. Yasmani Grandel is hitting 0.082 with a 286 on base percentage and slugging 182 batting left-handed. You mentioned that topping the ball. Yasmani Grandel in 2021 is topping the ball 43% of the time batting left-handed. In last year, it was just 28.6%. It is a big jump in topping the ball rate. And as you mentioned, Jim, it's led to a huge increase in ground ball rate this year. Yasmani Grandal is putting the ball on the ground 57% of the time, batting left-handed. That's a 21% increase from 2020. And I understand there are people that I respect on Twitter that are saying, don't worry about Yasmani Grandal. It's bad luck. Guys, a player who has 20-grade speed Hitting the ball 57% of the time on the ground is not bad luck. That's Mm -hmm. bad execution. And I'm with you, Jim. And you can hear it in Steve Stone's voice talking about Yasmani Grandal's struggles that this is someone that doesn't want to make an adjustment right now. It doesn't appear he doesn't want to make an adjustment because he's just going into this insanity route of continuing to do the same thing over and over and over again. We see Zach Collins let the ball travel deep and Zach Collins is fine to try to beat the shift or try to go opposite field, but we don't really see that with Yasmani Grandal or we're not seeing that in 2021. He's not hitting line drives and fly balls at the rate that he was last year. So yeah, that's a big problem, but the White Sox really need these two guys. They need Jose Abreu and Yasmani Grandal to step up because you can't count on forever for Yerma Mercedes to carry the load, you know, offensively. Even Tim Anderson is starting to press a little bit when he's got guys on base going into hero mode because, man, if I don't do it, nobody behind me is going to do it. it. This is where an offense could really hit a slump. So... I'm speaking it into existence, Jim. The White Sox really need Jose Abreu to catch on fire, especially if Robert is going to be out 
for many weeks. They need the 2020 American League MVP to emerge and help carry the offense to put some runs on the scoreboard because I have confidence the White Sox starting pitching is going to continue to do what they do. And man, I I don't want to see the White Sox lose a bunch of nail-biter 4-2, 4-3 type of ball games because the offense suddenly fizzles out. It, the offense, even though it's lost to Loy Jimenez and Luis Roberts, should still have some punch. But they need the heavy hitters like Jose Abreu and Yasmani Grandal to start punching because they're not doing that right now. Yeah, I know. I know. I bring this up a, a lot in, in different contexts, but like I, I think back to the Cleveland offense in the last few years, like with no outfield. <laughs> I think that's pretty pretty instructive to turn to now. Uh, just the you know elite players you know, uh, sprinkled around the infield and. You know, decent performance at catcher, like they've gotten from uh, from uh, Roberto Perez and before they Jan Gomes, and just really struggling to find uh, find outfielders of note, like fixtures in the outfield. And I think that's kind of what I look to here, is that when you have like um, you know the, the top five, which is you know Anderson, Moncada, Abreu, um, you know Madrigal, um, and then you have Grandal, and then you know, hopefully Mercedes keeps it up too. It's like that's probably better than what Cleveland has trotted out most of the time. Except maybe with uh, you know the skill sets like you know I would say Lindor, Ramirez, and Santana just had stabler skill sets that that were able to hold up better for uh, weeks at a time just because of the plate discipline across the board. I think the White Sox are a little bit more hot and cold based on how aggressive they are, but still I think the the thought process holds in that you have like you know two thirds of a lineup can get the job done if you can sequence at bats, but the the power has to show up because I think that's what you know, so many of these rallies end up in the laps of Larry Garcia. Like, you know, it yeah. seemed like, you know, every base loaded situation had to go through him. And same thing with like Jake Lamb, uh, as it happened with Zach Plesak on Sunday. I think it's a case where, you know, it would help to have a little bit more power from Moncada and Abreu and Grandal just to not, you know, not have their productive at-bats be base movers. Uh, to where you just keep, you know, you maybe get a run here or there, but you're just kind of, uh, you know, you're and, and you're keeping the line moving, but the line all of a sudden hits like a, a hard stop with, with certain players. And so, you know, while it's valuable to have at bats like that and, and string together plate appearances, I think four runs to show up on the board in chunks, I think it would help to have the occasional homer or failing that, like just clumps of doubles from guys who right now are just kind of settling for singles. Good points, Jim. So if the White Sox are going to survive Luis Robert being out and you know, again, not having Aloy Jimenez, Tim Anderson's doing what Tim Anderson does. And Mercedes is still hovering around 400 uh, with his batting average. And he's doing the best that he can in his rookie year. Andrew Vaughn's figuring out how to hit major league pitching and Nick Madrigal, he does a good job of making contact and getting on base. And like I mentioned, Nick Madrigal is out slugging Yoan Mercada, Jose Abreu, and Yasmani Grandal. And for the love of baseball, that should never happen after a month of a season. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even if Nick Madrigal is hitting like 10 doubles, it should not be happening. But it has, and it's time. It is time now on May 3rd. For Jose Abreu, Yasmani Grandal, and Yoan Makata to start hitting for some power. And hopefully those three can carry the load offensively because the White Sox are 15 and 12. And that's kind of the part where you look at the record, Jim, and say, you know what? 
that's when it's impressive that they're 15 and 12 because they're not really getting a whole lot from these three guys offensively. All right, so let's shift topics here as far as the White Sox offense and what they've got to do. Uh, another thing they got to do is that this team needs to start winning games when Lucas Giolito makes the start. And this is a stat that really surprised me, Jim, after Sunday started, which, you know, Lucas Giolito, he got into the sixth inning. He only got one out, so he only allowed two runs in five of the third innings. It's not a quality start, so it's not a great start. It's an okay start. And, yeah, in his last three starts, they they haven't been beautiful for Lucas Giolito. And his season ERA now is 4.99. But we're entering some Jose Quintana luck here for Lucas Giolito. Because again, the White Sox are 1-5 when Lucas Giolito starts games. That's problematic. The White Sox have only scored 19 runs in Giolito's 6 starts. Worse, they scored 10 of those 19 runs in one game. Mm -hmm. Giolito has made 2 starts against Cleveland. The White Sox have not scored a run in those 2 starts. It's very hard for a starting pitcher to win a game in the American League when your offense is not scoring any runs. It's actually impossible to win those games. And this is a bit of a concern because the White Sox, I think, are undefeated when Carlos Rodon starts, which is great. Uh, And obviously when everybody else makes their starts in the starting pitching front, they win more times than they lose. But if the postseason were to start tomorrow and there's a one-game playoff, one would think Lucas Giolito's the guy you want to make that start. But boy, luck is not on Lucas Giolito's side right now. Uh, and it's just kind of fascinating. And I, I'm, I'm chalking this up as it is early <laughs> stat. Mm-hmm. But it is something that I am a bit concerned because Lucas Giolito is just not getting a lot of support. And what I thought, what I would think is, hey, this should be a good day because Lucas Giolito's starting in fact, is not a good day for the White Sox to start 2021. Yeah, well, you know, I guess the one way you can look at it is one and four should be two and three with the way that Larusa managed uh, uh, Giolito against Detroit. And, and probably that number doesn't jump out to you if, you know, Larusa does fair. his job in that start. So that's one way to look at it. The other is that, you know, you have Rodon going 4-0, and, and and I don't think anybody expected that. And we talked about that with depth, just that, you know, with Carlos Rodon showing up with Dylan Cease having a good start. That uh, just, you know, and if Dylan Cease, I think you need to see a bit more from him to believe it's real, especially seeing the way that uh, the Yankees beat up on the Tigers. Like, uh, just uh, right now, I think the Tigers are kind of the American League punching bag. So, if you want to feel good about yourself, self-play Detroit, and I think that uh, Cease accomplished that. But you know, just the uh, you know the the way the season's going, and and with the way Giolito's going, I think the one thing I'll say about Giolito specific to him is that it does seem like Boston, with the way they approached him, sitting on the changeup, did make me think that you know other teams saw at least a way to beat him, or at least fend him off, make him work harder. And, you know, Detroit did an okay job with that based on their talent. Cleveland did a better job with that. And I think he tried to mix in the slider more and throw better changeups. And he did that. But I think he's just going to have to work a bit harder right now in his current form. And, you know, I think it took a lot longer than anybody thought. I think long enough for people to think like, oh, the league will never catch on to this. But, you know, the high fastball, high fastball, you know, high fastball, I should say high changeup or, or changeup wherever 
uh, game plan that he had is it might need to be fine-tuned a little bit or the slider might have to step up and and carry more of the load to get people off the changeup and make you know hitter, uh, make uh, the lineup respect his entire three-pitch arsenal more but I think there's a bit of a retooling here for Giolito to where you know um, maybe he doesn't meet uh, the zips projections that he had at the start of the season but ultimately becomes like a you know, maybe not quite a Cy Young winner, but still, you know, the, the the good pitcher, the very good pitcher, the very valuable pitcher that we thought he would be. But this kind of just, uh, I guess, adjustment by the league to him finally uh, just might, you know, force people to just set their expectations a little bit lower. And then you, you hope that with Rodon's, you know, uh, emergence out of nowhere and hopefully some improvement from Dylan Cease too, that they'll be able to pick up the load from a little bit of disappointment on Giolito's side. Well, you call me down on the Lucas Giolito front, but again, it was just something that was eye-opening. Is that, wow? Yeah, after after Sunday's <laughs> start, you know that six starts for the season for Lucas Giolito, and the White Sox are one in five when he starts games. Like, that's odd. But yeah, I should have said two and four. I was looking at the uh, I was looking at the Baseball Reference game log, which didn't have Sunday's game on it. it. But yeah, so so it would be two and four. But still, but, yeah, big difference between two and four yeah, and one and but five. But you make a good point. Russa manages that game in Detroit better. If the bullpen doesn't blow the lead in the eighth inning, then we're talking the White Sox are three and three and Lucas Giolito starts. And that's not a problem at all. But again, it was just something that after the the Cleveland game on Sunday, it's like, this is odd and a bit problematic. We wanna we want Lucas Giolito starts to be good days. They're not right now for the White Sox. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Uh, so hopefully that trend reverses real quick because his next start's going to be in Kansas City, and that's going to be a pretty big start for the Chicago White Sox and for Lucas Giolito as the Royals continue to lead the American League Central. All right, so before we preview the upcoming series against the Cincinnati Reds, the Golden Cog, the Player of the Week, which is voted by our followers on Twitter at Sox Machine, and you can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. This was the closest vote for Player of the Week for the White Sox that we've had so far, but it's Dylan Cease edging out Carlos Rodon by 1% of the vote as Cease picks up his first Player of the Week performance, and it was his excellent 
complete game shutout start against the Detroit Tigers in that split double header. The White Sox, the White Sox had earlier this week. So congrats to Dylan Cease as Carlos Rodon almost won it for the second time this season. And, you know, Rodon was also spectacular against Detroit. But Dylan Cease is going to have a stiff test as he'll be making the next start for the White Sox against a Cincinnati Reds team that is not good on the road. But boy, they look strong at home. So coming after the break, we preview the White Sox next series as they head to Cincinnati for two games. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. The Chicago White Sox have the day off on Monday, May 3rd, and they head now to Cincinnati for May 4th and May 5th, two games against the Cincinnati Reds. And the Cincinnati Reds right now are 13 and 14. In the National League Central, they're currently in third place, trailing both the Milwaukee Brewers and the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals have played good baseball. They've won four straight games. The Milwaukee Brewers, the injuries are piling up. So the Brewers and Brewer fans are not crying for the White Sox woes with Luis Robert by any stretch. They got 15 players on the injured list, and right now they currently lead the NL Central after winning three out of four against the Los Angeles Dodgers. And speaking of injuries, the Dodgers may get some bad news about Dustin May and Cody Bellinger has been hurt and Mookie Betts has missed some time. Again, everyone's missed time due to injuries. And, you know, for the Reds, they won a really wacky game on Sunday against the Chicago Cubs where 25 runs were scored. There were 10 home runs hit, uh, and the Reds won in extra innings, 13 to 12. They have lost six of their last 10 games, though, so it's not like they're currently playing at, at a high mark right now. But at home, they're 9-6 and six in 2021, and they're averaging more than seven runs per game at their home ballpark, which is really eye-opening. And the pitching probables for this series on Tuesday, this is a 5.40 p.m. Central time start. Really odd start times in this two-game series. It's Dylan Cease for the White Sox against righty Jeff Hoffman for the Cincinnati Reds. And Wednesday, check this, 11.35 a.m. Central time start. It is Dallas Keuchel against Sonny Gray, who has struggled to start the season. And again, that leaves Carlos Rodon, Lance Lynn, and Lucas Gilito for the Kansas City Royals series next weekend. And Jim, looking at the Cincinnati Reds pitching-wise, uh, strikeout rate for the starters, they're in the top 10 in Major League Baseball. For the bullpen, they're 7th in Major League Baseball. But walk rate, the starters have the 24th ranked walk rate. The bullpen has the worst walk rate in all of Major League Baseball. And both the starters and bullpen for the Reds ranked 20th in bullpen. So back to our previous conversation of having... Jose Breu and Yasmani Grandal and Yoan Makata wake up and start hitting for some power. There may be an opportunity here against the Reds, but for a White Sox team, Jim, that has been more than happy to take their walks, which makes me really happy as far as a team, 
I think they're going to get even more opportunities to get themselves on base with three passes, both from the red starting pitching and the bullpen. It's just a matter of taking advantage of those opportunities with the free passes. Yeah, it seems like they're going to play a lot of slugfests and you know that invites the White Sox to partake because when you mentioned the walk rate, I'll also mention the home run rate. They've given up the third most homers in baseball. So it seems like there's an opportunity for guys like Moncada and Abreu and Grandal, the, 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 the sluggers who are lagging to get back on track here. It is unfortunate that, you know, your mean Mercedes is basically going to be relegated to pinch hit opportunities, but, you know, perhaps that's a case where the presence of him is enough for uh, Larusa to make, you know, decent pinch hitting uh, switches rather than, uh, you know, stick with Larry Garcia and Billy Hamilton and whatnot. Like there will be opportunities for Mercedes to get involved, whether it's replacing a pitcher or, you know, center field, since it's going to be such a fluid situation. So he should have some key at-bats if the White Sox need him. Here's hoping that the at-bats he has are just like, you know, hitting for a pitcher when they're up six rather than needing to tie the game down three. And yeah, this is where it's going to get odd. So with Dylan Cease making the start on Tuesday, again, he's trying to duplicate his very good outing against the Detroit Tigers against a much stiffer offense. I mean, looking at the Reds lineup right now, Nicholas Castellanos has nine home runs already on the season. He's hitting 330 with a 366 on base percentage and slugging 660. Tyler Naquin, okay, this guy has been a pain in the White Sox spot in the past. Uh, he's hitting 271 with a 373 on base percentage and slugging 557. And Jesse Winker is hitting 365 with a 419 on base percentage and slugging 659. These are the three hot hitters for the Cincinnati Reds, and they all play in the outfield for the Reds right now. And they all have at least six home runs. And again, Castellanos already has nine. So for Dylan Cease in this start, Jim, when do you think Larusa has to pull the trigger? Because before the Detroit start, Cease can't get through the fifth inning. And now if he's struggling back to where he was before the Detroit start uh, because he's facing a stronger offense. How long is the leash before Larusa decides to pinch hit Cease in a, in a run scoring opportunity and have to dip into the bullpen? I think it's probably going to be on the shorter side just because one, I think Larusa probably will enjoy going back to national league rules and doing double switches and doing all the things that make him feel uh, like he can control the game more than a manager normally can. And also with the off day on Monday and then off day following this two game set, you know, he doesn't have to worry so much about using so many relievers or using like stretching out like a Michael Kopech again, or a Garrett Crochet for multiple innings. So there will be opportunities for all the relievers get involved without feeling like they're going to be burned out. So I think the, the hooks are going to be pretty quick. Also for Dallas Keuchel, I should have asked about Dallas Keuchel as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think Keuchel's has a little bit more credibility and a little bit more faith, I think, for uh, for a guy like Larusa. Just, you know, Cease, given his control issues, his efficiency issues, um, that, that seems where, just based on the timing of previous hooks, that Cease hasn't quite built up the faith yet. Now, I think, you know, if he gets off to a, a good start, like through three innings, and there's like a run-scoring opportunity where, you know, the, the bases-loaded situations that have been falling into Garcia's lap are now going to fall into the pitcher spot. And here's another thing I wonder, you know, with LaRusa managing, will Dylan Cease be batting eighth? That's another thing to, to wonder about. Um, but, you know, should the rallies get to him, you know, 
will Cease get to pitch like a fourth inning? That's, that's I think, what will be the, the curious thing. If he's pitching well, I think he will, just because I think there is some value in trying to get a guy like Cease to string together multiple good starts rather than pull the plug when it's working. So I think if he's functioning like he was anything close to what he was against Detroit, he will avoid the early hook. But I think if he's wobbling and if he's like through three innings with like 60 pitches or you know, 70 pitches, I think that's a case where uh, Larusa might be inclined to go for the bats, you know, if it feels like it's going to get him a multi-run lead. Hmm. Good observations, Jim. And this is something that we'll cover in Sox Machine Live Later this week, there's also some good news on May 4th. Uh, not only is it Star Wars Day, which if you know me is also a very big day, but it's the opening of minor league baseball as well. Uh, so we'll finally see action in Charlotte, Birmingham, Winston-Salem, and Kannapolis. You guys can see, you'll hear more about as far as that action, and you can also read more about it as soon as the White Sox do Jim a solid and announce who is actually the official <laughs> rosters for these teams. Yep. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, two more things. You mentioned, uh, C starting on, on star Wars day. Uh, I like Dallas Keuchel's chances the next day. Cause you know what it is? Sinker de Mayo. Sinker de Mayo. Oh, sinker de Mayo. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. All right. It, All it's right. for him. The other, the other thing before he's, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that more than you did, but to, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hashtag sinker to Mayo. Everybody, let's get that going. Uh, when it comes to uh, the Reds, the other thing I'm looking forward to in a way is Carson Fulmer because he's, in a way, he's pitching like the best baseball of his career so far. Like he got through uh, April with a 4.2 ERA and strung together like more scoreless outings than he ever had before. Um, but he's also had some characteristic struggles too, like some some ugly outings or, you know, inefficient outings like his last one against the Cubs. He, uh, you know, threw 14 of 27 pitches for strikes. So he's not quite fixed yet, but that was the one, uh, you know, the, the Reds were the, 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 I guess the most likely destination I could think of him for this year, just because he'd work with driveline and Kyle Bodie, uh, the founder of driveline works for the Reds now. So I saw that as a possible pairing. And right now, at least I think, the Reds are kind of getting more from him than any other team has uh, gotten from him. And I'm just want to look at his uh, philosophy now, see exactly what he's doing. But, uh, you know, I've enjoyed seeing Carson Fulmer pitch against the White Sox previous times. And I'm curious if that's going to be, you know, yeah, he's still throwing 93, you know, curveballs. He's throwing the curveball more. So I think that's maybe the one difference is that the curveball he's throwing it now 20% of the time, whereas he barely got over 10% with the White Sox. So that's, I think, what I'm looking at with Carson Fulmer. Can I be honest with you? I thought Cincinnati had already DFA'd Carson Fulmer by now. <laughs> no, he's he's hanging in there. Well, old friend alert. Maybe we'll see Carson Fulmer in these two games against the Chicago White Sox. And honestly, my expectation of the White Sox can walk out of Cincinnati with at least one win to split the series. I'll be content. I'd really like to see the White Sox win two out of three against Kansas City. Because now if you look ahead to the White Sox schedule starting next weekend, Jim, Kansas City, three games. Back home, three games against the Twins, three games against the Royals. On the road, three games at Minnesota. Day off, three games in the Bronx. Come home, three games against St. Louis. I mean, that is a tough stretch of games right now with teams playing a lot better baseball uh, recently and some pretty pivotal games for the White Sox. So again, this is a 
This is a good time for this White Sox team to start getting hot. It's a good time for Jose Abreu, Yasmani Grandal to wake up. It's time for Yoan Mikata to start out slugging Nick Magical. This would be the time, and hopefully this series against Cincinnati is a launch pad for the White Sox offense to start stepping up and try to help fill the void with Luis Robert being out. But again, we'll recap as far as how this series goes on SoxMachine.com with the game recaps and the White Sox wake-up calls. And Jim and I will have Sox Machine live later this week, which will be streaming on YouTube to recap the series and preview a pretty critical series starting in 2021 as the White Sox head to Kansas City. But you guys had a lot of questions for us, so let's start answering them next in P.O. Sox. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you can submit your questions to us via Twitter, following us on Twitter at Sox Machine, and you can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. But lately... Uh, because we keep getting more and more Patreon supporters. So thank you guys so much for your support. Our mailbox keeps getting flooded by our Patreon supporters. So for this week's podcast and P.O. Sox segment, all these questions come from our Patreon supporters. So again, thank you guys so much for your support. And Jim, the first question that we have from one of our Patreon supporters in Michael wrote to us, so, uh, firing Ricky Renteria in favor of Tony La Russa seems like a bad call. I feel like the headache of Tony La Russa's in-game decisions and his out-of-game antics. I was optimistic for a more progressive manager, but if the White Sox were going to stick with old school, this seems like a big miss. Yeah, I think the you're, you're seeing some of the tension, I think, in, in the manager that Rick Hahn thought he was going to hire and the manager that Jerry Reinsdorf decided that he was going to hire or that Rick Hahn had to agree to hire, however you want to word that, depending on who's, who you want to call the, uh, the acting force there. Um, yeah, it, it's not the, the smooth progressive fit that everybody thought was going to be the one to get this team over the top. I was thinking about it in terms of like, if Rick, Rick Renteria were still here, you know, would it be different? How it would be different? And I'm thinking, you know, with Renteria, he'd probably be better at like playing Andrew Vaughn every day if Vaughn didn't look overmatched. Or, or I think they would be similar in that Renteria would pick his spots for Vaughn. Um, you you try to make him look good early on, but I think he would be more inclined to roll with Vaughn as he shows he can handle it versus what Larusa is doing right now. Um, the other thing too, you know, with Renteria to this year is like, you know, I think if Renteria had this year's starting staff. Um, you know, his job would have been a lot easier. Uh, and I also wonder, you know, the, the, the thing with Renteria, like how would Renteria have done with a different pitching coach? Um, you know, not that we know anything about Ethan Katz yet, but 
you know, would, would Katz be the pitching coach? Would uh, Renteria have hired somebody else? Would like, you know, a Chris Fetter type have worked for somebody like Renteria who seemed like a uh, more stable force versus like LaRusse and everything he had going on with his DUI um, or, or DUI charge, I should say. So, you know, that that's a question I don't quite know uh, because I thought that was one thing that was maybe a bit unfair for Renteria is that he had to accept Don Cooper as his pitching coach to take the job, but then, you know, Cooper was, you know, fired and, and Renteria was fired at the same time. And so uh, it seemed like he might've gotten uh, tagged with uh, just a, a very um, stale pitching apparatus that he had no hand in picking and really no say in how the White Sox were run. But the one thing I will say about uh, Renteria maybe not helping here is if Renteria were in charge, would Carlos Rodon have come back? Uh, because that's the reason I didn't think Carlos Rodon would have a chance of pitching for the White Sox is because Renteria didn't seem to enjoy having him on the staff and didn't seem to know how to use him, didn't really seem to care how he looked or, or I guess like how he... Uh, um, you know, what kind of situations he was thrust in, you know, whether he failed or not. So I thought by the end of the year that Renterios don't throw down and because the White Sox don't fire managers before they have to, that's Renterio is going to be around and uh, those two didn't fit. But with Rodon coming back and looking great so far, like the White Sox, you know, maybe their best move of the winter, uh, maybe wouldn't have happened with Renteria there. So that that's the one thing I, I'm kind of thinking of. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a little bit tricky. And uh, you know, Larusa has had the you know, reputation of being forward-thinking and, and ahead of his time, and even l- late in his Cardinals career, you know, was kind of ahead of his time in taking the workload off starters when starters didn't have the ability to go through lineups more than once or twice. But right now, yeah, none of it's there right now. And uh, you know, when you have like Giolito saying he's tired and he's looking tired, and Larusa having to fall, you know, basically blame himself like three times in a month. That's that's not great. No, it's not. And of course, there's even more off the field issues with Tony La Russa that I yep. think, you know, if anybody has the guts to ask him about it after a White Sox game, they're fair questions. He's got a family civil war he's dealing with. His animal foundation has four lawsuits against him. I can understand if off the field, if there's off the field distractions that is impacting a 76 yeah. year old manager from doing his yeah. task day to day especially the task that has heavy expectations tied to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'd ask him before a game. Yeah. I don't think you're going to get anything, but <laughs> yeah, no, but just, yeah, it, it would be something if it were brought up, but yeah, that's, that's the one thing about Renteria you know, over LaRusse is you would, you wouldn't have to worry about the person. Right. Right. But I think you're right about the Carlos Serdan angle, which, you know, is really interesting because the White Sox are not 15 to 12. Uh, if Carlos Rodon's not throwing the way that he has been throwing uh, and gives one hope that maybe the White Sox chances of winning the American League pennant get stronger because this version of Carlos Rodon really helps out round out the starting rotation. So, Michael, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Brian Dolan. And Brian is asking, with managerial decisions being a hit button issue, what is the White Sox setup for analytics is it safe to say that Duncan's kid or how is his information being relayed to Tony La Russa? I, I, I'm guessing you meant to say hot button issue. I think he apologized for a typo with a subsequent comment. So a uh, hot button issue. But yeah, uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, the coaching staff, that's one thing I'm curious about. That's one thing uh, during uh, 
the radio rants uh, after the Giolito start, the uh, Larusa debacle against Detroit, that people were wondering, like I think Dan Bernstein and, and Layla Rahimi were like wondering, like what's uh, you know what's Miguel Cairo doing? What's Ethan Katz doing? What's you know maybe Shelly Duncan throw him? Like what are they doing here? Like what's you know who's in his ear? Who's telling him what the data saying? Who's telling him what like I guess. 2021 managerial, uh, I guess, conventions or uh, fatigue conventions that I think weren't in place when uh, you know, Larissa's managing last. Like, who's telling him that? And right now, I think that's kind of uh, uh, a great unknown. Like, I haven't really heard Shelly Duncan's name at all. I haven't heard, really heard Miguel Cairo's name at all. Um, and I think that's partially because of just, it's one of the byproducts of, I guess the media's access in Zoom conference, uh, in the era of the Zoom conference, is that you know they they talk to basically who they can talk to. They can set up things on the side, but you know, like I'm thinking last year with Scott Coolbaugh being the assistant hitting coach, and then he went to Detroit, and and thinking like I didn't, I have no idea what Scott Coolbaugh did. <laughs> he was here for a year, um, or half a year as it, as it was. Like didn't really hear his name at all. Didn't don't know if he had any relationship with hitters. But just because like he was a new guy who didn't have relationships with writers or, you know, reporters, radio hosts, and, you know, they, they didn't have any reason to reach out for him. We just didn't know anything about him. And I think right now it's the same thing with Cairo and in uh, and, and Duncan. It's just not hearing from him just because, you know, the reporters don't really know them. They've talked to him here, you know, here and there, uh, maybe during, you know, uh, press conferences and other kind of Zoom calls on the side. Uh, but they just don't really have the, you know, walking over, seeing them in the clubhouse, seeing them in the dugout saying, Hey, what's, you know, what's up with this? What, you know, just even like side conversations that don't make it in the stories. They don't have like that ability just to ask a question they've been meaning to ask and see, maybe it turns in the story. Maybe it turns into background information that they use in a story later, but there isn't any of that right now. So I think when you have new faces in the coaching staff, it just, you know, when you don't hear them brought up, you don't hear LaRusso referencing them at all. You don't hear other players talking about them. They just kind of turn into blank faces. And so I really don't know exactly what they do, if they do anything at all, if they're adding anything or if they're trying to, you know, feel out their roles as well in a LaRusso administration. Cause I imagine, you know, like with Cairo being a new role and Duncan being a new role and you have Tony LaRusso being a hall of famer, like maybe you don't step up and, and, and try to, you know, maybe you just, uh, take the tasks given to you rather than try to correct things. I don't know if they, they feel like uh, they, they can correct things or see things to correct, know how to correct things. So it's, it's a mystery to me. Yeah. It's a mystery to me too. I've got no insight on this and I'm glad you mentioned the, the beat reporters kind of being handcuffed right now because of the pandemic. And, you know, usually we'd get a James Fegan story about the assistant hitting coach. And yeah. we're not getting that because, you know, James not getting that type of access because he's not allowed in the clubhouse right now due to COVID. And I'm hoping after this season or maybe even later this season, uh, those things change and we get more insight, Brian. But yeah, I don't know who is in Tony LaRusse's ear, if it's anyone or if LaRusse is just, you know, leaning on his past decision-making, which again, he hasn't had to make these decisions in 10 years. Uh, so maybe that also kind of feeds into the frustrations right now for White Sox fans with Tony La Russa. But Brian, thank you so much for your question. 
Our next question comes from Mark Hope, and Mark is asking, the White Sox are leading the league in team-weighted runs created plus at 117. That's 17% better than league average. But that seems to be predicated on the fact they're also far and away the league leaders in BABUP. They also have the league's highest ground ball percentage, again, by a huge margin, and actually have a bottom eight hard hit ball percentage. Are they due for a painful offensive regression? And uh, Mark added that all these numbers were from fan graphs as of Sunday afternoon. Uh, so they're not as up to date after the game against Cleveland, in which the White Sox scored zero runs. But Jim, are the White Sox due for a painful offensive regression? I don't think it's necessarily painful because when you have when you look at the lineup, they have at least a third of it. You know, I'm thinking Anderson, Moncada, Madrigal. It would be a fourth if Robert were there, but or uh, four players, I should say, four ninths, if Robert were there. Um, we don't know how far, you know, how long he'll be out, how how far his absence reaches. But with those four, they're pretty much, especially Robert in his current form, where he's making better contact and making more frequent contact they're more or less guaranteed to have decent BABIPs just because they put the ball on the ground. They can run fast. They can leg out infield singles. They uh, can spray the ball around a little bit. Uh, they're not the most shiftable players. So I think they're, you know, if they had BABIPs below 300, I would, you know, at any point for extended periods of time, I would be surprised. Um, so I think when you look at the rest of the lineup and, and you know, who's expected to be doing like the bulk of the contributing, I think it comes down to, who will regress? Like, or I guess it's like positive versus negative regression. I think in the case of like your mean Mercedes, it's in Andrew Vaughn. It's negative regression because both of them have uh, you know very high BABIPs and some some things underneath their games that suggest it shouldn't be that high. And then you have like on on, on the other level, you have Grandal and Abreu, and Grandal, as you mentioned, being slow and shiftable. That he's he's not going to have like a a great BABIP, but his is in the low 100, so it shouldn't be that. Uh, but you also have Abreu, who's new, normally good, you know, based on his hitting style for, you know, a decent BABIP. And right now he's like in the low 200s, I believe. I, I've lost the number on that. But those two guys, and then Adam Eaton, who is is kind of, a, you know, right now in a, in a bad funk, but he should be more or less okay uh, around average. Um, those are the those are like the four hitters I'm looking at. Mercedes and Vaughn versus Abreu and Grandal, whose regression is, uh, I guess, stronger uh, and, and I think they're going to more or less balance each other out if they uh, either, you know, in, in the case of projections for the rookies or in the case of, you know, track records for the veterans. But if they all do what they're supposed to do, I think they'll more or less balance out and becomes more about, you know, as we've seen with many White Sox offenses, just exactly how much they can mitigate their tendencies to be over aggressive and chase pitches, get strikeout to walk numbers out of whack, get, uh, you know, the ground ball rate playing into that and just having some weeks that come up empty against good right-handed pitching. So I want to throw a philosophical question to you regarding team-weighted runs created plus after a month of the 2021 season, which we saw the league have the lowest batting average uh, before they lowered the mound. Uh, so it's the lowest batting average for the entire Major League Baseball in a single month, gym in our lifetime. Oakland is hitting 214 with a 302 on base percentage and slugging 380. Would you consider that a good team slash line? Uh, not aesthetically. Okay. 
Their weighted runs created plus is 101. Yeah. If that is league average and the White Sox are 17% better than league average, is that good? Is 17% better than bad equaled good? <laughs> Relatively speaking, yes. But I think, you know, when you have the 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 numbers that severe, I think it makes it a lot easier to slip away or like you just, you know, have your bad weeks be bad. You know, like if, if the, the band is that narrow between like watchable and unwatchable, then I think it, it's possible that if they have a bad week where they're hitting everything in the ground, they're striking out 14, 15 times in a game against two walks. And, uh, you know, they're letting the you know starting pitcher on the other side, throw seven innings and 97 pitches. Uh, that's a case where, yeah, that's, all of a sudden that, that 117 now looks like a what you know, low nineties offense. And just based on just how how thin the you know, just the batting average abilities, I should say, of of baseball is, I think that's pretty easy for for offenses to slip into ugly mode um for a decent stretch. Yeah. The 2020 Chicago White Sox had a team Weighted runs create a plus of 113 as they hit 261 with a 326 on base percentage and slugged 453. The 2021 White Sox, after the month of April, heading into May, are hitting 262, so right around the same batting average as last year, but they are getting on base more at 344. That's an 18% uh, 18 point increase, but their slugging percentage is down 51 points. They're slugging 402 when they slugged 453 as a team in 2021. So their team OPS is down 33 points at this moment. They were 13% better than league average last year. They're currently 17% better than league average despite a 33-point decrease in OPS. This is where right now, sure, if you want to give yourself optimism you could look at the white Sox team weighted runs create a plus and be like hey the white Sox got the best offense in major league baseball what are you guys complaining about but when i look at the league as a whole i i've been asking this question myself a lot jim if is 17 percent better than bad equals good and i i just it doesn't i think it's okay but I wouldn't say, yeah, this offense is good. Yeah, it, it's, um, yeah, I think it's just a product of the game. But yeah, it's just there are a lot more ways to be bad than good, I think. That's probably the way I'd put it. That's a good point. That's that's a very good point because what's really helping the White Sox is that they have a pretty significant lead in on base percentage as a team in Major League Baseball. And it makes me so damn happy to say this. They have a 344 on base percentage. I never thought I'd ever see the day that it'd be above 330, but here we are. And you got a team like Detroit who's got a 260 on base percentage. They're <laughs> last. Uh, you actually have four teams in baseball that have a below 300 on base percentage. And if you increase it to 310, okay, the Chicago Cubs have a 310 on base percentage. They are the league median right now in, in Major League Baseball. It's just that so many teams are not hitting right now. Mm -hmm. And it is frustrating if you're watching the White Sox and be like, I don't think this is a really good offense. Are they really the league's best offense? And in a way you can say, yes, they are the league's best offense. And that even raises more questions of, 
if this is the league's best offense, man, what has happened to offense in Major League Baseball? And I think that's fair. You can you can say, yes, the White Sox have the best offense in Major League Baseball right now because of weighted runs creative plus. But on the other side, you can say, but offense is not good right now to start 2021. Yeah, it's... Um... I think with the, you know, as we talked about before with the on-base percentage, like if the White Sox could just get a little bit more power to keep those, like those on-base percentage games from ending up hinging on a uh, Larry Garcia at bat. (laughs) So I think the, the offense would feel better than it is. I think they just need, you know, the at-bats to get into the, uh, to swing on the swings of difference makers. Yeah, a 10% walk right now for the White Sox is doing a lot of heavy lifting in their team-weighted runs creative plus. But Mark, I'm glad that you asked this question because at least once a day, Jim, when I'm watching MLB Network, this question has been entering my mind and there's really no one around me to have this philosophical debate other than when I get to chat with you on this podcast. And I've been meaning to ask this question like, Man, if if the offense is bad, okay. So you got a team weighted runs created plus of one seventeen is seventeen percent better than bad. Good, and I guess it's it's that whole uh, analogy that people have that if you're running in the forest, as long as you're not the last one trying to outrun the bear, you're in a good position. And uh, the White Sox, thanks to taking their walks and still having a high batting average. And hopefully the power numbers come around. Uh, you know they're doing a lot better than many other teams. And for if you're very frustrated as a White Sox fan watching this offense, I guess the good news is it could be worse because there are some offenses that are a lot worse than the White Sox right now. But Mark, thank you so much for your question, and thank you to everyone that submitted questions to us this week for PO Sox. The best way if you have a question or topic that you would like us to answer in a future episode of the Sox Machine Podcast is support us on Patreon.com. Again, we have well over 500 supporters, so when we post questions or we we submit the posts on Patreon to ask for questions, our mailbox is flooding in a hurry from our Patreon supporters. So if you enjoy our work and you want more and you want an ad-free version of the podcast and an ad-free version of the website and you want to first crack at any new socks machine swag that we release go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up we have monthly rates start at just two dollars a month there's a three dollar month tier a five dollar month tier and also a ten dollar month tier that you can subscribe to and you get more content again you get ad free versions of both the podcast and the website and first crack at socks machine swag so if that is interest to you go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up today and that will do it for this episode of the socks machine podcast thank you guys so much for listening if you just discovered the socks machine podcast you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and the socks machine podcast is a production of socksmachine.com your home for all things chicago white Sox baseball alongside jim margulis i'm josh nelson thanks for listening Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters, the more your network matters. 
The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.